The unique thing about Alzheimer's is I am watching her go. I'm watching myself lose her. Yeah. I'm simultaneously watching her lose me. Yeah. Which is a very discombobulating that that doesn't always exist in yeah. many of our other diseases, yeah. many of our yeah. other pathways towards the initiation of life death life and so that is very discombobulating. Like yeah. it's one thing to go, I'm losing, I'm losing this person. I'm watching them fade. I'm watching them decline, watching them move through some sort of progression, but to be watching them also lose you yeah. is, a uh, uh, really does a number on one's identity. And that's much of what I grappled with in that book. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome back to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. But just in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I certainly witnessed it over my career as a social worker, and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But honestly, I'm in the midst of a different kind of grief this season of the podcast, as I'm currently navigating breast cancer treatment. I'm wondering where you're at. Maybe you're in a new season of grief, or just new to reckoning with old grief. Or perhaps you're hoping to learn how to better show up for the griever in your life. Regardless of the reason, I'm so glad you chose to be here with me and my guests, because together we're reimagining grief, one conversation at a time. Did you experience, or maybe you're experiencing right now, losing someone before they die? That might have been a result of things like addiction or severe mental health, someone who ran away or was trafficked. I know I experienced that kind of ambiguous loss with my late husband, who became unrecognizable before my eyes in the year before he died of what turned out to be an undiagnosed massive brain tumor. In today's episode, my guest, Steph Jagger, explores one of the most common ways we experience this type of ambiguous loss, when someone we love is in the grips of Alzheimer's disease. In our conversation, just like in her exquisitely written memoir, Everything Left to Remember, Steph reveals what she learned when she took her mom, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, on an adventure into big nature under the Montana sky. While what she learned on this trip wasn't what she expected, she gained more than she bargained for, including insights on childhood, motherhood, personhood, the lessons of mother nature, and what it means to love someone who doesn't quite remember the person she spent her lifetime becoming. I can't wait for you to meet her. Steph, I am so excited to welcome you to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thanks so much for joining me on the pod today. I have been waiting for this conversation, so I'm so excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. Oh, such a pleasure. Listeners, if you follow me on social media, Lisa Kefau for MSW, you know I've been posting about this book. Everything Left to Remember, My Mother, Our Memories, and a Journey Through the Rocky Mountains. Um, this memoir, if you're watching a little social media clip, you can see all my little sticky notes and it's underlined, which is how I love to read books. Even when I'm not interviewing someone for the podcast, that's how I read books like these. And I can't wait to dig into really the story that you shared about this incredible journey that you took with your mother. Um just soon after her diagnosis with early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. 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 I'm so thrilled to talk about that. And I know you've written books before, so we're going to touch on that today too. But if we can, I'd love to start where I start with all of my guests over these last four years, really helping us all interrogate where do our grief beliefs come from, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have grief beliefs, whether we've ever uttered the word grief or not. And that's just by asking you to share with us an early memory of loss, maybe one of your earliest memories of loss and how were the adults in your life modeling grief that might be explicit or implicit. And I have a feeling from the story of the book, I might know what it is, but maybe you're going to surprise me a little bit, but yeah. Can you think about an early loss and, and what was grief 
how was grief handled in, in your family at that time? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is a beautiful question. So, um, I will say two things. One is this, this is a pre lifetime loss for yes. me. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it really demonstrated how, um, my family, um, dealt with loss. So my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who I never met, she died before I was born. She died just a, a handful of years before I was born. And I really never heard about her. Mm. I didn't hear stories. I didn't hear stories about grief. I didn't hear a lot about how she died. I didn't, that wasn't, um, there wasn't much said. And it wasn't until I was moving through the grieving process of my own grandmother and then what is now the ongoing grieving process of my mother that I, that it kind of was like, wait a second, like how this was never discussed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I, you know, I flipped forward to, you know, what I would call my, my probably biggest early loss was the loss of my grandfather um, when I was in high school and he was like beloved, beloved to me yeah. and to, to, to many in the family. And there was a grieving process there that, that was, I would say, pretty fitting with the kind of British Scottish um, like lineage, which was kind of clenched jawed, you stiff know, upper lip. Ear, stiff upper lip. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there was some open weeping. I remember, you know, around the time he actually passed. And then from there, it was um, pretty, pretty silent. Um, I personally felt an instinct early on yeah. to move into storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he passed, I, I wrote something shortly after I had, a, I had an English class assignment about, I actually think that the assignment was about World War II, but because he was associated with that. I just, I made like, I know how to do this. Yeah. Project. Yeah. And I wrote this piece and I remember getting a good grade on the piece. And she's like, you didn't do the assignment, (laughs) but this is beautiful, beautiful writing. And I ended up reading that at what was his celebration of life. And Mm -hmm. so I felt an instinctual pull right away to move into storytelling, which is like, okay, now we know why she is an author and why she wrote this book. But that, that was my instinct. And what I saw around me was predominantly a stiff upper lip and a few tears. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you going into the detail about the various kinds of losses and, and also just exploring what it, what it looked like for you, but also that you were able to sort of even break through some of the lessons that you were learning, the explicit, implicit lessons that you were learning from your family and kind of trust some inner knowing that storytelling for you was one way that you were going to process your yes. grief. And and just as a reminder, if in case somebody is a new listener to the show, I asked this question over these past four years. It comes from my training as a narrative therapist. Um, and it's really about this instinct I have for us to really make visible what our grief beliefs are. We all hold them. For many of us, they're most influential um, shapers of our grief beliefs are our family. Of course, we also live in a Western culture that doesn't do grief well as well. And that isn't um, an invitation to uh, insult our parents because they were doing the best they could, right? Oh, I mean, I, your yeah. parents' parents probably acted the yeah. same way. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this even even last night. So we were just talking yeah. before we started recording. My 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 wonderful father is here visiting, yeah. and um, he had just done a trip to Scotland. One of the first trips where there were periods of time on the trip where he was traveling solo, you know, without his, without, without my mother. Yeah. And so my husband said, you know, how, how has that been? And, you know, now you're 10 years into this, this grieving process and, you know, where do you feel you're at and how have you been handling that? And, and it was such an interesting thing. Cause my dad said like, Oh, like I've never thought of it as grief. I mean, I, I feel moments of really profound sadness yeah. At the same time as like profound love and 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 gratefulness and gratitude for having lived certain moments, and I'm like that is grief. That's it. It's so interesting. I know how, how we don't connect. Like, oh, that could be part of a conscious grieving process. Yes, yeah. 
Well, we're so, going to dig into conscious grieving today because I've heard you talk about that before. And I, yeah. I love that so much. And your dad's experience is so many of our, our experiences because we don't have good narratives and collective storytelling, generally speaking, for most of us to identify that those experiences of sadness, of homesickness, of longing, of mm-hmm. bittersweetness when someone is alive is grieving. And just to have language, which I know you care so deeply about um, as a storyteller, as a writer, um, I think is so beautiful. And maybe what a gift that was for your dad in a way for you mm-hmm. to sort of, and for your husband to sort of give them him that permission to name mm-hmm. that says, oh, this is, this mm-hmm. is grieving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, today we're going to talk about, again, this beautiful memoir, Everything Left to Remember. If you're check out this book, so beautiful, everybody. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. Yeah. Um, your mother has been living with Alzheimer's for, did you just say 10 years now? Yeah, almost. Almost 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diagnosed about um, eight years ago and was showing okay. signs a couple years before that. So yeah, almost 10 years. Yeah, almost 10 years. And so when we think about those kinds of some people might categorize that as anticipatory grief, although I think that's selling it a little bit short because I think there is, as you said, conscious grieving of all of the little and big losses that are happening along the way, not just with Alzheimer's, with any kind of diagnosis. Listeners probably know by now I'm going through my own breast cancer journey, and I am absolutely having all kinds of grief experiences over my health, over my capacity we're going to dig into today. So I think that's such an important piece that we talk about that we can give permission for ourselves as the loved ones of someone going through a diagnosis, like for you and for your dad, for your siblings. I know you have a lot of siblings, yeah. but also for, for those folks who are going through it. I certainly am experiencing that grieving. I'm wondering, there are, have been phases along the way where your mom's awareness of her own illness brought her grief. Do you do you remember early on in her Alzheimer's ever having conversations about her own sense of loss? Yeah. I mean, we certainly didn't really have conversations about it because that just wasn't, you know, she wasn't of- a talker. We, uh, this is what we learned yeah, in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and which, which is, uh, was actually part of my grief. Like, yes. Are there going to be people, you know, close to me who are going to be able to have conversation because I'm a, I'm a verbal processor, a storytelling kind of processor. And so, yeah. You know, I think that there's there's such an unbelievable landscape here. I think, you know, going back to your your first question, even as I'm pondering on that even further, I think there was a um, a definition of grief that was like, when and only when someone dies, dies. Yes, you can have a moment of grief inside of the shock of that, right. or the or the kind of acute. Okay, now they are gone. Yeah, you know, 24 hours, like whoa, you know, and then and then it has to go, and and especially around the definition of when and only some, when and only when someone dies. So, you know, that doesn't account for the grief of like, like just moving through a collective experience of COVID. I know a lot of people did experience death in that, in that, you know, two or three years, it doesn't account for job loss. It doesn't account for the kind of grief that that women and families have when they're, you know, going through empty nest, you know, when their kids go to school, it doesn't account for all of these different forms of grief that we encounter when anything, any part of our identity shifts enough that there's loss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, you're speaking to my, I mean, this is the mission of my work in reimagining grief and my work with this podcast is really helping us expand both what it is we are defining as um, the sources of our grief, but also then the impact of our grief. So Mm -hmm. as you are alluding to, it's not just sadness, it's all of these other things, but also it's not just in the emotional realm, it's in the cognitive and the physical and the relational and the spiritual. And so um, it feels to me that on this journey that you took, this 11-day journey through the Rocky Mountains that you took with your mom, tenting, as she called it, which I loved, (laughs) um, you also discovered that you were kind of hoping for kind of language and story and could reckon with that. But what you really discovered was a lot of the sort of physical, spiritual, kind of the other ways in which you were coming to make meaning of of this loss. Can you tell us a little bit first about, I resonate with so much of this book. I'm trying to figure out where to start. I mean, besides mm-hmm. which Jackson Hole in Wyoming and out that out West and Yellowstone has a special place in my heart too. So I loved that. But can you tell me what was the impetus 
for even doing, taking your mom on this journey. You knew you wanted to head out West. I mean, nature has been a big part of your own personal life and spiritual. Yeah. I think, I think the, the unconscious impetus was, you know, a bolt from the blue. I, I just, I had come home from a trip. I got struck with this idea. I got struck with the idea to take her and it just, it all made sense. And you know, I've moved through enough of my life in like traditional goal setting that really speaks to the first book that I wrote. Yeah. That, that I'm, I'm a woman who's oftentimes known as like, oh, you've got a bucket list. Like you're, you're checking things off the box. And that is true. But the, the way that that's shifted over the years is that the bucket list I use now is, am I listening for what I'm called to do? Yeah. Number one, do I have the courage to say yes when I hear it? Number two. Yeah. And so, so when I got that kind of bolt from the blue, that call, yeah. You know, it's like, okay, I've got to do this. And I won't know why I can, I can think I know why, Yeah, which is, uh, and that for me in the moment was, I think there's like a gap of time. I had just watched my, my grandmother, my mother's mother move through kind of classically presenting old age dementia. Mm. And she had passed away about six months before we left. So I knew there was a period of time where there was enough of my mother still available, still there from a cognitive standpoint yeah. that, um, that was going to go, you know, so this seemed like some, like a good opportunity to take advantage of. Like now's the time to collect these stories to, to connect yes. with my mother. Yeah. 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 And so that was the kind of, if I had thought the conscious reason why now, yeah. when I, when I look back and I look at the unfolding that was actually happening, I think one of the things that we do think about when, when, at least in my family, when we think about grief was, okay, like I need to get something now. I need to process something now. There's a linear nature to it, you know, yeah. all of this stuff. And actually what was going on, I think for me was unconsciously, I think I was looking for um, what I'll call the feminine energy of grief, which to, to me is what is the thing that is going to hold us where there's going to be enough space and steadiness for us to break apart and come back together. Yeah. What is the thing that will hold us in that time? What is the expansive space? What's, what's the thing that's large enough? Yeah. And what is the thing that is warm enough, steady enough, like cozy container, enough? like a container. safe container. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, and, and that brings me just directly to everything I know about nature, nature. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no mother bigger than my own than mother nature. And, and I think I was looking for, a larger mother, a large enough kind of mother presence to hold my mother and I, as we did this. Yeah. I love that so much. And this is one of the many places that we resonated. I, if we lived in the same town, we'd be naturing together all the time, nature adventures. It really spoke to me. Nature has definitely beauty. What I call them beauty walks have been a source of my own um, healing through the various losses I've experienced over life, which started before, but arguably after the death of my husband now almost 12 years ago. But you you wrote, I mean, I literally could just read from the entire book. Your, by the way, your way of weaving the reflection and the spiritual with the storytelling is kind of unparalleled. It's really mm-hmm. blew me away. But on this sort of notion that how do we find places or spaces or ritual where we can feel contained so that we can fall apart and come back together in grief in nature. You, there's this one passage, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a few passages to you today, if you're okay with that. Um, But you are speaking sort of about this call to mother nature being Mm. what was going to serve you in this time of connecting with your mother. And you said, this was not the first time I had run to mother nature looking for guidance. She had been a source of wisdom for me many times in the past a provenance of hard-edged veracity that, with enough time, melted into solace. The very best part about being in nature is that the truth meets you there, which is also the reason it's hardest to go. I don't Mm. know why, that just Mm. brought me to tears. What is it, do you think, especially about kind of what I call big nature, which you were in Wyoming and Montana, and there's almost no bigger nature than that. What do you think is about that, that is the kind of container we need when we're in the tumult of deep yeah. grief? Yeah. Well, grief is huge. And so I think we need something bigger than grief. Yeah. We need, we need, we need spaces that are bigger than grief. We need, a, we need to be able to access within us a love that is large enough that can kind of 
walk us, companion us through the grief. Yeah. yeah. And keep us safe within that. And so uh, that's big nature is, is some of the biggest places we go included in, included in aspects for me of, of nature um, are wonder and awe. Yeah. And, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. 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 And so, so to be able to walk with my mother into certain, you know, certain parts of, you know, Yellowstone or certain vistas or certain, you know, things that we were accessing together. Even this, this is the part that was so helpful for me because I wasn't going to get stories from her. I wasn't going to get words. I wasn't going to get a big conversation about her interiority and her emotions, even though that's what I, I desperately wanted and in some ways needed. Yeah. What I was still going to get was an ability to feel and sense through my like human animal body, yeah. a sense of connection because we're both sitting in front of this thing or this, you know, Vista and we're both in a sense of on wonder, wow, this is so much bigger than us. Yeah. And yet there's a feeling that we're part of it. Like we're so tiny in comparison, but we're also woven into the fabric of it. It's everything and nothing at once. And, and we can feel as though we are both connected as individuals together, but also with, with what is around us. And I, I just, I think that's a balm for grieving. You know, so much of grief can involve, um, isolation and loneliness and, you know, grief, I think, uh, sorry, nature, I think allows us to move that subtly shift that into that loneliness or isolation into, into solitude and connection. Yeah. Belonging. Um, That's what I think about when we're in big nature is we can't, we, the guise of Western individualism and aloneness kind of melts away when you're in big nature, in my experience, and you can feel this kind of deep connectedness, which yeah. is, as you said, a bomb for grief, which is a particularly, again, culturally, I would say is a very isolating experience yeah. for us here in the West anyways. Yeah. 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 I, I also think there's a, there's another component for me that, you know, as humans, we, we are spectacularly gifted at masking and hiding yeah. and presenting a certain face yeah. metaphorically or literally yeah. to, to, you know, cover the things that, that are painful for us. Yeah. yeah. And, and nature can't do that. No, nature can't do that. Well, and the pain of nature is the reminder that it is the pain that we go through, that nature goes through, that gives us the vistas and the mountains and the beauty. Like you don't get the, you don't get the one with the, without the other. Nature is such an important mirror. That's right. It's a mirror for that. And it's, it's a mirror for, for the master initiation of our life, which is life, death, life. And I could go into all of that, but, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is, you, you see the scarring of a wildfire. You see it when you're driving through certain areas. I, there's a whole section in the book that I talk about that. Yeah. I just recently saw a video. It was it just it just was astounding to me, a video of a um, of an elk bull that that actually had in its um, antlers the the previous like it, it was had sparred with another elk bull, oh. and that elk bull had died, and and it was left with its antlers and skull hanging off. I mean, it was unbelievable. Wow. This video, it's, it was astounding to think the, just the evidence yeah. of its battles, yeah. you know, and its losses and its wins. And it's, it's, it's just, it's all right there. And that's, that's what I mean by that quote that, yeah. you know, the truth meets you there. And that's, that's the, one of the reasons it's hardest Hard. to go yeah. is because we are so good at, at putting up walls, masks, et cetera, to, protect ourselves and others from what we think is going to be too, too painful for us instead of coming into communion, coming into belonging, coming into, this is too heavy for me to carry on my own. Can you carry some of it with me for, for an hour? You know, being in nature allows us to do that. Yeah. 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 One also to your point, I think one of the things that this sort of the invitation of that you got to experience by being sort of sitting side by side with your mother gazing into the water. I know that was a source for her. That Mm -hmm. was so really powerful. I recall. And I feel that way as a longtime scuba diver, water is my, is my happy place is that when we do that masking, we also then don't really get to appreciate awe and wonder and joy. And I think we think there's an either or versus the both. And that is the reality that grief and joy can coexist, that being in a state of awe allows us actually to be with our grief and then 
grief when it's too heavy, awe is the respite that we need so that we, as you said, can carry it. Well, absolutely. I mean, grief is evidence of our love. Yeah. And so, you know, in order to then process it and move through it, we have to be able to include that. And you're absolutely right. You know, when we mask it, we end up moving into a bit of a survival mode inside of our nervous system, which does flip us into black and white either or. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and most we, of us are operating in that. Most that's of, right. That's in right. modern life, most of us are operating out of that survival nervous system activated state. Yeah. yeah. And nature is, if you want something to kind of get you out of that real quickly, in my mind, nature will do that for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's our, it's our wonderful kind of co-regulator. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, so you, you embarked from Canada, brought your mom into the States. You went on this sort of, I think 11 days, three States, three national parks, road trip, tenting, as your mom called tenting this journey. You were sort of, you spoke really beautifully and honestly, I so appreciated having friends who've had parents, um, experience Alzheimer's and dementia, um, about the frustrations that you sometimes felt with the repeated questions or the forgetfulness, yeah. but also you spoke beautifully and I'd love to read another passage uh, kind of about the particular, the particularity of losing someone before they're dead and the kind yeah. of loss that that initiates for us that is maybe different. And again, I don't believe in grief thiefing. All loss is hard and we yes. don't need to compare, but there is a particular. Uh -huh. experience for the graver. Um, and you said most of the time losing things doesn't really happen that way, or maybe it does, but it's just too hard a thing to look at, too hard a thing to bear. Because losing something is one thing, but to be in the midst of losing it, to be in some liminal space betwixt and between, where you must watch the thing as it goes is a whole other story. I can't think of something harder to lock eyes with. I can't think of a single thing I would rather not see, never mind feel, and then have to remember. Mm. And um, of the many things that I stickied, underlined, and highlighted in the book, that one really resonated for me. And just to call out for even those, what, what, re why it resonated, I think, so deeply for me is, again, I don't have this experience of losing someone from Alzheimer's, but my late husband, some of the listeners probably know, was misdiagnosed for more than a year and had become a completely different person, completely upended our lives. Yeah. As it turned out to be, he had a massive um, brain tumor that mm -hmm. he died of two weeks after diagnosis. But I remember not even because I didn't have the diagnosis of Alzheimer's or even uh -huh. a brain tumor. I remember feeling this excruciating pain that I couldn't describe as I'm, he's here, but he's uh -huh. not here. And all the things that we're losing, what did, was there something that you discovered in particular on this journey about this experience of losing someone right before your eyes? When we come back, Steph explores the difference between what she hoped to discover on this trip through big nature with her mother versus the gifts she received along the way. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. By the way, if you're loving the episode, don't forget to spread the love by following me and posting about it on socials. You can find me at Lisa Kiefoffer MSW and at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'd love to hear from you there. Friends, you may not know this about me, but I'm a sucker for anything that combines peanut butter and chocolate. But what my body doesn't need is excess sugar, which is why I love the fact that Mosh peanut butter chocolate crunch protein bars have no added sugar. What I also love is that Mosh founders Patrick Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver made their brain health and wellness company mission driven, donating a portion of all proceeds to support women's brain research through the women's Alzheimer's movement at Cleveland Clinic. Mosh protein bars are a convenient and delicious snack that nourishes the brain and body while also giving back to others. Like peanut butter and chocolate, I'd say that's a winning combination. After the show, head to moshlife.com forward slash sneaky to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack 
What? Yes, you heard me. Mosh is offering my listeners 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all six delicious flavors. Head to moshlife.com forward slash sneaky today. Hey friends, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, it would mean the world to me if you would do one or all of the following things, actually, if you'd like. First, follow or subscribe to the podcast. Following helps you because it means you won't miss an episode when it drops, and it helps me because then I know you won't miss it. You simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show. I think there's there's a lot of ways that we could talk about that, and, and this is probably language that, that you use and have used and, and hopefully your audience is familiar with, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't know if there's any such thing as a standard grieving process, but there's, yeah. you know, there's grief yeah. and there's also anticipatory grief. Right. I'm, I'm yes. In a yeah. stage when I'm anticipating a loss, which yeah. is, um, exists in, in many cases. Yeah. There's also like ambiguous, ambiguous grief, loss. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which, which is, um, part of that journey as well. Yeah. I think one of the things that is, you know, unique about, about the Alzheimer's journey or, you know, any sort of cognitive decline and probably fits into a handful of other categories, uh, as well with degenerative disease, but really specifically around cognitive decline is there is that ambiguous loss and ambiguous grief around like you're losing them, but they're still physically healthy in front of you. Yeah. And, And what I've come to understand about that is, I have to move through or or I am choosing to move through a conscious grieving process of of my mom as she goes, which is anticipatory and ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. The unique thing about Alzheimer's is I am watching her go. I'm watching myself lose her. Yeah. I'm simultaneously watching her lose me. Yeah. Which is a very discombobulating that that doesn't always exist in yeah many of our other diseases, many of our other pathways towards the initiation of life, death, life. And so that is very discombobulating. Like it's one thing to go, I'm losing, I'm losing this person. I'm watching them fade. I'm watching them decline, watching them move through some sort of progression, but to be watching them also lose you. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, really does a number on one's identity. And that's much of what I grappled with in that book. Like who, who is there to reflect my identity? Me back, back to me. me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those moments inside of a cognitive decline journey that, that, you know, the first moments say that your, your loved one doesn't remember who you are, doesn't. And, and that's, you know, it's very, very confronting. Yeah. And so um, that's a, a really, I think unique part of this journey for folks. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, in the beginning, again, cause you're a storyteller and your language is so important to you. Your search was really to kind of get answers from your mom to sort of talk it out to like get some clarity. And you discovered kind of quickly that you really had to come to grips with your mom is, was not, and is not a talker. And you, and you sort of, talked about sort of her lifelong sort of the forgetting and remembering and the sort of dance that was happening for you. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered on that journey? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can t- I'll talk about that in two different ways. Um, I think the first thing is that, yes, my mother was never a person who was highly expressive um, verbally. She was, she was very expressive and demonstrative with her love physically, but yeah, not verbally. And, and then also, especially so in the emotional realm. And so I probably wasn't going to, even though I was craving it, fall into these like, you know, depthy conversations that are rich and profound about, you know, your emotional landscape as you're moving towards and, and down this path. What my mom, I feel, I feel did deliver me to was what I've come to call and what I, what I speak about in the book is the language of my mother tongue, yeah. which is, which is not 
language and words, yeah, which is not processing through narrative and story. I believe that to be critical and helpful. And I engage in that process. It's why I'm a writer. And she really delivered me to this place where my body, my, my somatic self was invited to the table to feel, to connect, to belong, to process, to digest, to integrate, to come into a particular regulation or stillness or ability to be with yeah. my physical self and her physical self mm-hmm. and all that is accessible to us from that place. And so yeah. I've gone on to talk a lot with folks actually about the phrase, um, like, I think therefore I am. This is, this is a huge part of our society. Right. And I, I really believe it is one of the things that makes yeah. us uniquely human yeah. is our ability to think the way that we do. Yeah. Um, and we cannot lose sight of the fact that a whole other part of our instrumentation as human beings is I feel, therefore I am. I perceive, therefore I am. I sense, therefore I am. Like all of the tools of what I would call like the mother tongue, the language of our flesh. Yeah. And so that was really one of the huge parts of the trip was, oh, we're not going to talk. We're going we're gonna to sit and sense and feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the warmth of her hand in mine, the, the way I can feel her heartbeat moving through her fingertips, the, you know, any of those things. And, and that, that has become such a huge part of this. Now, to relate it back to the dance of forgetting and remembering I mean, I've come to to understand a definition of remembering could be, you know, what our brain is able to pull up out of the files that have been stored there over the years. Yeah. There's also a type of remembering that I, I usually spell R-E-memory, remembering. Yeah. Yeah, and, I love that. The, yeah, the ways in which we have been kind of pulled apart, you know, our mental body over here, our our emotional body back in the past, our physical body, you know, deemed not valuable enough, especially as, as women or female identifying folks to like actually live inside of, um, you know, our spiritual body really inaccessible to us nowadays. I, c- I could go on and on. And so the ways in which we've been, you know, dismembered really, and, and the act of remembering, of, of yeah. bringing all of our bodies, our mental body, our physical body, our emotional body, our energetic bodies back to the same place at the same time. Yeah to see, you know, what, what is, what is the life force available? What is the aliveness available to us from that place? What can we connect to? What can we sense? What can we feel in belonging with? What can we see? And, and uh, that's been a gift, a gift that really began on this journey and has continued with her as she's gone further and further into cognitive decline and really has now lost almost all ability to communicate at all. And so that doesn't mean that there isn't connection and communication of some form still available. Stuff. So much richness there. I'm trying to figure out which place to pull. There's a few things that really resonated for me when I read it, but also in this discussion. One of the first ones is I want to sort of draw out for our listeners, which was you went in with some intention about what you thought the gift of the trip that your mom could give you was. And yet you remained open to this whole other gift, which was this embodied remembering and this embodied way of connecting that as the sort of intellect, and I can definitely relate. I'm a story, I mean, narrative therapy and storytelling, and I love to live up here. And one of the things that I've been even experiencing recently is again and again, again, especially as the disease course takes over my body yeah. is like, yeah. we are really actually embodied. We are feeling creatures who think that is the truth. We're yeah. not the other yeah. way around. And, and I also recognize um, that you were able to be open to this gift of this sense of connecting and this, this connecting back, as you said to your mother tongue, this way of knowing that the very virtue of the fact that your mom wasn't a speaker, a talker was a gift to you, though you wouldn't have called it a gift maybe in the beginning, but that, that practice of really having to surrender to stillness, which is the phrase you use. And mm-hmm. again, this was resonating for me a lot because that's one of the things that's happening is the chemo course and the weight of my treatment. I'm used to being here in my production and intellectual storytelling head. And as I call, I don't know if I'm ready to call cancer a gift, but this gift of this experience has been 
what is it I feel about my, the surrendering to stillness in as cancer, as you describe what happens when you're sort of in nature. It's like, it's the best place to be held, but it's also frightening because that's where the truth lives. I mean, and, and that's, that's an exact correlation to the body. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the best. It's the inner landscape of our, we're retreating into our own inner landscape and it's beautiful there, but it's scary there. It feels like oh. a wilderness for those of us who've lived in our sort of, well, and, and intellectual also, brain, which is, by the way, everybody in the West. I mean, that's sort of how we live. Absolutely, absolutely, and it is scary. And 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 also, you know, for those of us who have lived experiences either through violence or through disease or through, you know, just the societal conditioning, you know, our, I, I think, I think, I really think that's why we're here is to learn to come back to the come body. back to our bodies. Yeah, just so. I mean, think about it. You, you know, you're going through this journey. You. Yeah. you in many ways, you could say, you could have a narrative of like, my body is at war with me. Yeah. You know, so, so that is a excruciating and colossal task to say, you want me to be roommates with this? Yeah. Like, right. you, you want me to, you, oh, so you want me to like combine, climb down out of, out of the safety of my, yeah. my brain, which I've been taught to go to and is a yeah. very helpful place. Yeah. And you want me to combine it with this place that is, has hurt me, carries wounds. Yeah. I, I mean, it is a very, it, it's so easy, you know, for us to have a conversation and say, oh, you know, this was lovely and this is what yeah. I did. This is, this is the work of it's life. It's brutal. I mean, it is a work of a lifetime. This is, um, you know, I think I was just listening to a conversation the other day. I can't remember. It was on We Can Do Hard Things or one of the other pods out mm -hmm. there about kind of these circular lessons that we keep learning at each phase. Oh, and yeah. for me, I mean, having survived trauma when I was a teen too, for me coming back to this being at peace in my body and surrendering to stillness yeah. is this lesson. And it, and it felt like that was kind of what you were talking about as you moved through this journey and discovered kind of the unspoken language that can happen when we are moving through grief. Yeah. Um, that was just, and that that was the gift. I, I would love to read another passage because I think it sort of ties together this notion that we can all find our way home in our grief, in our connections, especially if we have time to be with somebody prior to their death for that kind of loss, but also mm -hmm. kind of circling back to that sort of the idea of the feminine and the gift that your mom gave. I don't know if this passage, if you recall, but you said in the midst of my mother's forgetting, she was teaching me to remember this language, to use it to re-recognize the self I had long left behind. She was teaching me not to return to her, but to return to myself. So as to move forward, the woman I have the chance at becoming. I saw my path forward. All I had to do was trust that something inside of me knew how to keep walking. I had to believe that when my mind had run its course, something inside of my body held enough wisdom to guide me. And I had to have faith that this of all things was my birthright. The inheritance given to me by my mother was not her story, but the ability to feel into mine. This mm. was feminine knowing. This was my body understanding. I had nothing more to learn and everything left to remember. That's the title of the story. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. anything you want to add to that? I mean, just, again, I've underlined, tagged, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, because this was many years ago that you took this trip. So now when you hear that again, what comes up for you when you think about that lesson? I think what comes up for me, I mean, I, I think this is such a beautiful timing because we really have come a very, very long way in the last handful of years, starting with, you know, uh, the, the neuroscience uh, and brain science around the nervous system and, and all of the work people like Gabor Mate and, yeah. and Dr. Hillary McBride are doing in the world in regards to embodiment and many other people as well, yes. you know, thematic experiencing and this type of therapy. It really is about, you know, coming back into the body. It's interesting that those two people and myself are all from Vancouver, British Columbia. I know. Is there a vortex? I love of, that. I but I, I think what it makes me think of is probably in the largest degree of things, I think we've, we've moved through a type of, a type of spirituality over the, over the last, you know, maybe, maybe starting in the fifties, definitely in the sixties and seventies that was, wow, you know, this, this human experience is painful and let's begin engaging in spiritual practices that kind of like take us up and out to, to a higher frequency, you know, this yeah. wellness and spirituality. It's like, we want to go up and out to a higher frequency. Yeah. 
And what, I think what that led to was, you know, a lot of bypassing of the actual felt sense of the of the gifts of the body. Like, that, there was the well, gift of toxic positivity that came right, as a result exactly, of that. Exactly. Yeah. Like, let's go to the music and disregard the flute. Yeah. If we're if we're gonna yeah. talk about yeah. that. Yeah. And so what, what I think we've been moving towards and what I am extraordinarily dedicated to in my own practices and as well as the other work that I do in the world is actually inviting the reverse, is, is, is attempting to increase our, our sense-based, our emotional, our somatic, our physical capacity, increasing and increasing and increasing, increasing slowly over time to invite more of our source, our um, chi, our prana, our life force, our yeah. God energy, our whatever it is, down into our bodies. Yeah. So that the flute is actually playing the music. I mean, this physical self, this animal body that I have is the only thing, energy, or if you're going to go into a spiritual realm, you know, God or source energy doesn't have. And that's why we're here. We're not here to become more like that. We're here to use that so that, so that energy and source and, and God have, have this beautiful instrument to go, wow, when we combine, we get to play music. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, that's, that's really, yes, there is, there is pain that exists in this body and wounding. And, and we could go into a whole conversation about, epigenetics and lineage-based trauma, but I, I really, really, truly feel that that's why we're here. We're here to, to be part of that orchestra and, and we cannot be part of it if we are completely disregarding the fact that you're a saxophone and I'm a clarinet and this person over here is the tuba. Like, yeah, yeah. then we're just looking at notes on a page. It's just black and white. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And, and again, I'm on a very similar path, which is why I said before we started recording, like we could be having some convers lots of conversations and collaborations offline mm -hmm. because one of the things that I've been, I've been working towards again in my own experiences of trauma, my own experiences of trauma and grief and loss, but also the work that I've been doing through the show as a professor yeah. of loss and grief and all the ways in which I show up is helping us start to understand, as I said before, the sort of cognitive, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational dimensions to our lives, including our grief. And that we, and that part of why we suffer, I mean, grief is hard. There's no way around that. Um, and we suffer unnecessarily, I think, in our grief because we try to, we are convinced that we can do it by thinking our way through it yeah. in this very linear path, disconnected from the wisdom that our body is telling us to sleep yeah. and to rest and to cry and to wail and to be in awe and wonder yeah. and all the things that we need to nourish ourselves at the sort of embodied level. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually, I don't think we suffer in our grief. Um, I think we suffer in our resistance to our grief. Well, that's what I was saying. I think that's yeah. what the unnecessary suffering is. I think grief is Absolutely. hard. It's beautiful yes, and it hard, yes, but I is. think the yeah. suffering that we experience is because of the sort of misinformation and the, right. The, right. And the disinformation yeah. and the harmful grief beliefs back to where we started right. that right. cause us to have what I call the shoulds, right? We have these shoulds yeah. that we yeah. should all over ourselves in our grief. And that's where I think that unnecessary suffering comes from. I think absolutely, that, yeah. absolutely. It's that, that, that resistance to, and I, I, you know, that I'll never forget this. I was listening to, um, Brandy Carlisle was doing an interview with Brene Brown a while back. And she mm -hmm. said, uh, she said, uh, this line, I might get it wrong, but it's something like this. Mysticism is the most practical thing in the world. The only thing about it is that it's found smack in the middle of grief. Yeah. And I think, I think that experience of, um, yes, it is hard, but if I, if I, um, relinquish and, and, and put place on the ground, my resistance to this, yeah. my bracing from this, my, the tension I'm holding, trying to hold, trying to push this off, trying to hold yeah. this off. And actually attempt to kind of sink into this. I may, I may, I may feel there may be pain, a particular type of pain, maybe that sorrow or rage or anger that moves through my body. But if I'm willing to to continue going with that, yeah, it, it doesn't stay stuck. It moves. All, it moves. All emotions. Our suffering is when we stuck it with a story that we've told, and that's where it gets that's stuck right. and difficult. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But if we keep going through that. Um, I have found time and time and time again that that there is 
there, there is and there are spiritual experiences or mystical experiences available in that place. And yeah. one of the things, like, I've talked to many people about this, and a lot of people might say, like, oh, that's too woo-woo. That's yeah. not actually involved yeah. in there. That you know, you know, okay, whatever lady who lives in the woods and yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, then you kind of ask questions like, have you ever had an experience where you just you you found a penny in a random place and it reminded you of your grandfather or you 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 have birds are a big one like you know if you ever a hummingbird or a cardinal or something that's representative of your uncle or that experience that you had with your your sister before she passed away and like almost every yeah. person i talk to is like yes yeah like even the most kind of conservative thinking who wouldn't want to go into the spiritual or the woo or, you know they they will also have things in their families like every time we see a dragonfly we yeah. we think about john you know yeah yeah, I agree. So there's something to that. And and I, I'm a I'm a really big believer in, in utilizing the totality of our humanity available to us. Yeah. To to feel into those uh winks and miracles and and sometimes we've got to move through um some uncomfortable feelings to get there. As we began wrapping up our conversation, Steph and I explored what it means to practice being with our emotions in grief. And the suffering we often experience when we either resist or hang on too tightly. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Hey, I'd love to stay in touch with you off the air too. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Are you wondering when the heck my TED Talk is going to drop? Yeah, me too. It's got to be soon, right? Or are you hoping for some sneak previews from my book that's dropping in spring 24? Maybe you just like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. Here are a few quick and easy ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. It's called that because like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast and my work as a grief activist too. And third, and you know the drill by now, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I so appreciate that um, word that you brought up, which was really this resistance. And I think that Mm -hmm. I want to name too, if you're listening and you're very freshly early in your grief and this, this notion that grief is doesn't have to be hard or that there isn't suffering or pain and that feels too far out for you. I give you permission to flip us the bird and tell us to, you know, <laughs> fuck off. It's my show. I can swear if I want to. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I hear that and I absolutely agree time and time again. And this is the work that I do, especially when I work with individuals is like when we can feel into the soft spaces and allow the sorrow, the fear, the judgment, the homesickness, the bittersweetness, whatever is that emotion, which lasts, by the way, emotions, 90 seconds, everything that that, right, is, is the story we tell. The feelings are the stories we tell. Emotions are raw data. They last 90 seconds. They're neurobiologically wired, right? Our, Our feelings are the stories we attach to our emotions and some, and I, and this isn't a judgment, by the way, we all have them, but yeah. it's, it's when we resist and we kind of get them stuck that we do experience some suffering. And we all will, by the way, this, there's, there's yes. no highest, I mean, maybe the Dalai Lama, I don't know, but like the rest of us are all get into our feelings spaces and there's lessons to be learned there too, even when they hang around maybe longer than we will want to. But the invitation there is, I guess, is, no emotion stays, no feeling stays forever. Not the ones we want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And definitely not the ones we don't, but they're all information. Absolutely. It's all Absolutely. information. And, and 
this is a lifelong practice. I mean, I've been thinking, talking about this, doing this as a social worker when I was a formal therapist, and I still get stuck there. So I'm not kind of trying to speak from a higher place, but that's the invitation I think we keep coming back to over and over again. I wonder how you've Oh, done I, that, I, that surrendering to allow, allowing the hard emotions to move through. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm so glad that you just offered that definition, the 90 second definition. That's exactly, that's exactly what I utilize in my own work when I'm working with folks and with myself. I think when we've, be, we've, we've engaged in a practice of storing our emotions, of, of, of halting them in their tracks and then moving up to our heads to, to talk ourselves out of, I shouldn't feel this yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When we've engaged in that practice, which most of us have, myself included, and, and we begin into this work, we, we begin opening the door to this work. I'm a big believer that sometimes it does take longer than 90 seconds because like yeah. we've got a can of worms down there. <laughs> exactly. It's and, been backed up for a while. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and when we begin engaging in the practice over and over again of, of exactly what you just said, this is, wow, this is interesting information. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I, I think you're absolutely bang on. That's exactly how I think of emotions. Emotions in my mind are energy in motion. It wants to turn from one form to the next. And how do I assist it in, in doing that and, and glean some information in the process? Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a, a big yes for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the ways we do that to sort of just kind of close the loop up for now, anyways, on sort of the somatics is we do that by really listening into our body and keeping ourselves from jumping in to the sort of narrative shitting storytelling parts of ourselves and, and kind of looping back to the, the experience that you went on in this journey with your mother in big nature. I think one of the reasons we can find some solace in ritual or retreat or nature. And it doesn't mean you have to go on a, you know, 11 day road trip or even on a yeah. retreat. I know yeah. you offer retreats and um, is, is it gives us that space and it kind of is a call or an invitation. I think big nature in particular to invite us to drop out of there and to be, to be with us. But as you said, it can be scary at first when we aren't Everything that's new and that we aren't practiced at is scary because it feels so sort of unknown. Yeah. Unfamiliar. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, I think space is the key. I think it's, it's one of our greatest uh, and probably most underutilized gifts yeah. in the world that is really, really driven to distraction in, in, and, and when it's, when it's initially perhaps painful to bring all of our bodies to yeah. get into the same yeah. place at the same time. But, but I do think that that space is, is, is critical and it, it's the, you know, most important ingredient for me in regards to any, any kind of new creation or co-creation. If we're talking about the kind of master initiation, yeah, yeah. you know, space is required for something new to transform and, and come into being. So I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a big one for me. Yeah. 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 I want to note too, for those who are listening, and I can say this for myself as again, someone who's survived a, a, a few traumas is that for some of us, you know, being in our embodied self doesn't feel like a safe space and we need some support and some guidance and some containment because being in our bodies have been unsafe. So I just want to note that I'm not, I don't think either of us I know aren't flippantly sort of saying, just drop into your body. Cause for some of us, that is absolutely not a place you are capable of going. Mm -hmm. And that's where I say, find your somatic therapist, find your tra trauma-informed therapist, find someone who can guide you. Because part of when we kind of struggle sometimes in our grief, especially if there's a correlation with either trauma related to that loss or former trauma that was not addressed, is we struggle to sort of move into our grief in ways that feel Embodied. Safe because we don't have, yeah, because we don't have that capacity to be Absolutely. embodied. And that's, that, that, that's exactly why I said earlier, like, this is the work of a lifetime. It is. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's one degree by one degree by one degree. I keep and, kind of, I keep chipping away at something and then a new life event happens and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Here's the work we're going to do again. Yeah. There's a beautiful definition of, of, of self-care um, by Susan Raffo. All self-care is the constant practice of ensuring more pain does not accumulate. In other words, wow. you know, we move through our life and we experience different, different things throughout our life. And some of those experiences, um, encourage us to like coil or brace or get tense or, or defend or protect, right? Which is beautiful. Beautiful. Like, like thank gosh our bodies do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that in order to come back into regulation, in order to ebb and flow out of those states, that there's got to be practices in place that allow us to unbrace and uncoil. Yeah. And that is a slow and intentional and, and, and 
um, oftentimes painful. You know, I think about this as a skier. I've spent a lot of time in the cold. Right. You're a world records. That's skier. right. That's right. Skier. I know. Yeah. Coming into a thaw yeah. is painful. It's painful. Yeah. And it has to be done very slowly. Yeah. I um, think about that as a diver. You have to ascend yeah, to the surface and take these safety stops. You can't just shoot up. And that's, you know, that's where I think intentionality and attention is so um, critical as we move through any kind of transformation, which right. I think grief is one. You know, as we begin to sort of wind down our conversation, which even saying that makes me sad. We're we might have to have a part two here in a soon, but I, there was something that struck me towards the end of the book when you sort of cut, sort of you ended this eleven day road trip. You were back at at home in in mm -hmm. Canada with your you know brought your mom back home to your mm -hmm. dad, and mm -hmm. your dad had asked you know about mm -hmm. how was the trip, and your mom sort of didn't have words, you know, mm -hmm. kind of didn't describe and and you. You talked so beautifully about this discovery of aliveness, which another guest of mine, Cecily Saraski, talked about. You said, all in all, my mom and I had been on the road for 11 days. We drove 1,957 miles through three states and three glorious national parks. We saw seven bears, 11 if you include the ones I dreamt about, which <laughs> we didn't get to talk about the bears today. We slept in five different campsites. We went through two bottles of Bailey's and I learned slowly and fitfully the definition of surrender or at least the first few steps. I had walked holding my mother's hand as she led the way in the stony silence of the wilderness only to realize that there is more aliveness there than anywhere I had ever been. And there was my mother unable to recall a single second of it. Hmm. Yeah. I yeah. What comes up for you when I read those words back to you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it. Thank you for reading them back to me. It's it's you know sometimes we need our own medicine in a way. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a couple of things that come to me. The first is you know obviously in this passage I talk about surrender and and we've talked you, you kind of alluded to you know those cyclical messages that come back to us. that 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 is it that's yeah. it that's the message for me through my lifetime is yeah. that I keep bumming, bumping into in a variety of different capacities yeah. is the kind of dance between control and surrender the illusion of certainty and and, yeah. and moving into yeah. the discomfort of uncertainty. So that's one thing that comes up. I think the second thing that comes up, which is you know, really a recap of the, of the, of the conversation that we've been having is what is the definition of aliveness? You know, is it, is it to think therefore, I think therefore I am, uh, or, or is it to utilize all the different notes on the flute? Is it our ability to smell something or taste something or sit in the same room as someone and just sense their warmth or their presence? Is it, um, our, our ability to hear music or the rustling of leaves is, I mean, there's, there's so much. And, and that to me has become, you know, a real obsession is a, as like a, a North question. star. Yes. Yeah. Is, is looking for more and more aliveness. And, you know, one of the things, you know, to go back to the grief conversation is that I am a really big believer in that initiation, that life, death, life. And, and if we push off, if we resist the death or the grieving process that comes with it, we think that leads to more aliveness. Like that's our quest is we're looking for the more aliveness. Yeah. But when we resist that, it suspends that initiation. It turns it into a living death. That's where we get burnout and paralysis and, and numbness, numbness yes. and stagnation instead of actually moving through it, um, you know, hopefully with other people, hopefully with help. And, and coming into a place of like, oh my gosh, there is the rest of the aliveness with a new type of aliveness. It's yeah. available. And it's, it's wonderful. You know, we mentioned this, my dad's here for a, a, a bike ride Father's Day weekend. And, and, and that's predominantly the conversations we've been having is, you know, 10 years into this journey, um, there is still grief, you know, occurring um, for him. And I'm watching him kind of come into, he used this phrase the other day. He, he said he felt like just in the last month or so, he's been reseated in himself mm. and just beginning to feel his feet on the ground in, in a new way that's, that I'm seeing him actively watching him engage with aliveness in a different way than he has been able to over the past yeah. 10 years. And it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. And what a thing to think that that's available to us on 
on the other side of our journeys. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I mean, that's in he's having an embodied experience of coming home to, yes, you know, himself in that way. And yeah, I think this, 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 a lot, this word aliveness has been kind of rattling around in my brain over this last year. I had a conversation. I think it was at the end of season three um, with Cecily Sreski, whose um, son um, died of an accidental fentanyl overdose. And she had written this beautiful piece that she said, I used to think that the continuum of life was sort of between sadness. I'm getting, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to get a little bit wrong, but between sadness and happiness. And Mm -hmm. what this experience taught her is it's actually the movement between numbness and aliveness. Mm -hmm. And that really our work is to continue Mm -hmm to sort of, I know, chef's kiss to that, (laughs) right? Um, To sort of move into our aliveness, which feels, again, back sort of full circle to the sort of cultural myths that we have about grief, feels intellectually counter, a counter conversation to grief and loss. But aliveness, I think, is in the very nature of what it is for us to mean to be moving um, in this world, uh, acknowledging and being being with our grief is to sort of continue to return over and over again into our aliveness. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's, that's, you know, right on my website is a, is it like, may we search for and find more and more and more aliveness so much, like may we fill ourselves with so much of our own aliveness that one day our physical containers just cannot even take it anymore. And then poof. Yeah. Oh, well, somewhere else, you know, I mean, that's, that is, that is my wish for, for everyone is, is to find, you know, and, and, and when I say that it goes back to that conversation, like millimeter by millimeter by millimeter of, of just more and more aliveness um, until our physical containers go, that's enough now. And we're going to transform into something else. Yeah. Yeah. Steph Jagger, what an absolute privilege to be in conversation with you today. Everyone, everything left to remember, pick it up at your, check out a local bookstore if you can. If not, you can order it from you know who, but um, pick up a copy of this book. Yours is probably going to look like mine. It's going to be dog-eared and underlined, and it's going to be a treasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Listeners, you can click the link in the show notes and follow us on social media. We'll be posting um, some reels and some conversations from our conversation today. So follow us at Lisa Kefauver MSW and follow Steph. Remind me of your handle on your socials. Uh, on Instagram is at Steph Jagger. Website is stephjagger.com. And, yeah. and really, you know, Lisa, thank you. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the magic and the, and the capacity and the capability that that is involved in the creation of space. And, yeah. and you've done that here in this conversation. I'm, I'm very grateful to have sat in that space with you and, and, you know, kind of looked at the beauty and the, and the exchange within it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, friends, there's another episode of grief is a sneaky bitch podcast in the books. Don't forget if this episode or the show in general means something to you, head over to your favorite podcast platform, like Apple podcast, and leave a five-star rating and write a review. I truly would appreciate it. And if you want someone else to feel seen and held in their grief, why not share this episode with them? I also want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.